0: So welcome, Choose Love audience. Uh, I'm honored to know Dr. Joanne Cacciatore after having met her during a groundbreaking study on mass grief that she did following the Sandy Hook tragedy. Dr. Cacciatore wrote a book called Bearing the Unbearable. What a perfect title, because that is exactly what losing a child is. Documenting her own loss and stories from others Um, And it is a Indies Award winner, gold medal for self-help. It's an amazing book. If you've experienced loss, you absolutely have to read uh, Bearing the Unbearable. Um, Joanne also wrote Grieving is with the emphasis on is loving, grieving is loving. She is featured in the 2021 documentary series, The Me You Can't See from Oprah, Prince Harry and Apple TV. Her work has been featured in major media sources such as People and Newsweek magazines, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, CNN, National Public Radio and the Los Angeles Times. She's been the recipient of many regional and national awards for her empathetic work, and service to people suffering traumatic grief. She is an acclaimed public speaker and provides expert consulting and witness services in the area of traumatic loss. Her research has been published in peer-reviewed journals such as The Lancet, Social Work and Healthcare and Death Studies among others. I know for me personally, Joanne, you gained my love and trust because you are a bereaved mother. Um, I, And if you don't mind my sharing, your newborn daughter, Cheyenne, died on July 27th, 1994. And that single tragic moment um, catapulted you uh, relatively unwilling, to, uh, totally unwillingly, onto the path of studying traumatic grief and writing about it and speaking about it. And we're so blessed to have you here today with us to talk about uh, your work and uh, and how it relates so much to today's world. Mm, thank you for having me, Scarlett, and thank
1: you, Jesse. I mean, I have to acknowledge your little man,
0: um, my little man, who is with me in everything that I do, who helps me opens doors (laughs) I have to acknowledge him if I don't I feel him tapping me on the shoulder going hello mom don't take any credit for anything because I I I have done so much of it (laughs) Uh, well thank you so much for being with us today and this is a great excuse to say hello on a personal level as well yes 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 it is yes it is you continue your work in grief and you know Today, um, this is during COVID. You can't say post-COVID because uh, the Delta variant is now out there. And as you know, I work in schools and they're masking up again and even considering keeping kids home um, and continuing the the social isolation. Um, And that is grief as well. That is, that is, uh, people are grieving and it's so interesting during this past eight years, you know, I went from thinking that grief is the loss of a significant loved one to seeing grief everywhere all the time, all day long. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I think, I think one of the things that happens
1: when we lose something that, that is treasured to us, whether it's. Um, you know, a a job we love or a sense of security in the world and safety in the world. Uh, Any kind of loss that we have cues up for us stress in stress, that's not just emotional, but stress that can be in the body, stress that can be in the social sphere, um, you know, interpersonally, uh, stress certainly in our psychological and emotional state And there is no shortage of stress going on. In in fact, the past two years has been incredibly distressing for a lot of people. It might not be, um, unless someone has lost a loved one to death during this period, it may not be, uh, especially if it's untimely, it may not be a post-traumatic stress, but it can be a level of distress. And so it happens on a continuum. Uh, So you have, there's actually something called eustress, which is sort of a a good kind of stress, the kind of stress that we get when, uh, if we love roller coasters just before we get on a roller coaster, right, or just before the first kiss, Uh, you know, our bodies respond with stress hormones and our heart rate increases. And, you know, you get this uh, surge of energy in your body that you can feel. So if it was a continuum, you stress would be on one side. And on the other side, you would have the, on the other far side, you would have traumatic stress, which is of course, tragically what you and so many other families endured that horrific day in December. and what so many other families endure when their child, or uh, you know, when they're when someone they love dies by suicide or is murdered, you know, those those kinds of st- stressful experiences reach the threshold of traumatic stress. I think what we're seeing in most people now is a level of sort of just this buzz of distress in the world yeah. because so many things have changed and. Uh, the feeling of safety, the feeling of security, the feeling of 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 sort of not being afraid in the world anymore, you know, has gone to the wayside. People are afraid. They're right. afraid
0: and they're suffering the consequences of that. And they're anxious and worried. Um, but I also see like, like um, non-traumatic grief, I guess. Grief of not being able to see people. Grief of Uh, loss of freedoms of the world that we knew, uh, you know, having to, to, to start living in a different way. And, uh, and I'm seeing that. uh, And, and I guess, you know, when, uh, when JT went back into school, Mm -hmm. I noticed that there was so much fear of grief um, going, going into that, that it was interesting, Joanne, I don't know if I ever talked to you about this, but no one, Uh, asked JT how he was, Mm -hmm. you know, going back from seventh to 12th grade, nobody ever mentioned Jesse's name. Nobody ever mentioned the tragedy. And so therefore JT would come home and he would say, no one cares about me, mom. Mm -hmm. And I would say, oh, this is from seventh to 12th grade. I would say, oh, JT, I don't know what you're talking about. I just got off the phone with your educators. You know, we they had a they had a care meeting. They literally called that where they put him at the head of the table and they went around and they were talking about different services that he was getting and he was able to have a room when he was, you know, wanted to be alone and he got more time on tests and all these things. But he still, they could never convince him that they cared. And we realized afterwards it was because no one had mentioned Jesse's name. Nobody had validated his grief. No one had talked about the tragedy, unless it was like, you know, in the context of just a whole classroom setting. And they mentioned it without special consideration that JT was sitting in the room. Uh, And there was just so much fear surrounding it. And I I think that we need to think about that and we need to understand how important it is to address it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something I see every day in this work is that fear gets in the way of love, right? So mm-hmm. what happened with JT is people were not emotionally connecting with him, right? Because they're afraid of, of his emotions. The, the idea that talking about the person who died um, and invoking then tears and a show of emotion is because is because we have this fear of emotion, strong emotions in our culture, yes. right? We, we, we don't, we don't, we're not comfortable when someone cries. We get uncomfortable. We hand them Kleenex so they can clean it up. We say, come on, let's go to a movie. Let's go have a drink. Let's let's do something to make you feel better. And that's one of the things I say in my work as a counselor <clears throat> to grieving people is that I don't help people feel better. I help people feel. I don't need them to feel better. I just need to teach them that they can feel and trust their emotions. And, and that deep intimacy, when someone isn't afraid of our strong emotions, that sense of deep emotional connection and intimacy really allows us to open up and be more vulnerable. Well, if people aren't doing that, if they're not inviting us into that really holy space of deep and honest emotion, then not only do we not feel connected to others, but we, we also can start to mistrust our own emotions. Not everyone does that, but I've seen it happen. And so I, I think in a, in a very, very real way, we, we need to do better in our culture about educating about grief and about loss and about trauma. And start talking and teaching people in all systems, not just pedagogical systems, not just university systems, but we really need to start educating people who are in churches, who are in schools, who are in agencies, who are in uh, crisis response, we really need to start educating them about how to really help.
0: I, I so agree. I mean, there was so much fear. They didn't even ask him how he was doing because they thought that he might say he wasn't okay. And then they wouldn't have the skills and tools to handle that. Yeah. But, you know, what, what we realize is it's not skills and tools. It's the courage to be present with someone in their pain, right? And, uh, and anybody who's listening, I, I, you know, that that's the key is just to be present and sit there. You don't have to have the right things to say. And uh, what I've been, what I've been saying in my talks is, you know, you can ask, how are you doing? And um, I ask an audience member and they'll say, fine. Well, of yeah, that's because it's a rhetorical question. You don't really think that I care, but if I say, Hey, no, how are you doing? Right, then right, it, right. then that puts the onus on them. Then they know that I have the courage to be present, that I've calculated a little bit of time in case right. they say I'm not well, and that I want I want to listen right. and then they can say, I'm fine again, but they know that you care right. and, and right. care right. is, is, is beyond For me care is beyond kindness Um, kindness in our society has kind of become like this this box that you check off and 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 a week of workshops and then we go on and care is kind of this underlying thing that exists that that has the emotion in it that's authentic and true for me
1: yeah i mean that's a really nuanced view of it and so important because you can act kindly without caring, right? It, it, it's a behavior, right? Yes. But to care requires a deeper level of connection, right? Because yeah. you're invested, right? Yes. I, when I was in graduate school, one of my former professors, uh, Melissa Lavitt, uh, said something that I'll never forget in class. She said, the best way to care for people who are in pain who are hurting is to care for people who are in pain and hurting.
0: Yes. And I just love that. Yeah, caring for them that's how you care. Yeah. And that's what we need to teach. I think maybe, maybe replacing kindness weeks with, with caring weeks and teaching, you know, the ability to go inside and to be present with those who are hurting instead of just trying to put a bandaid on it, which so many people do because they're uncomfortable actually being present with it. And then, and opening your own heart. Um, but there's, there's so much benefit from that to the person who has the courage to be present, um, in your book you said that you saw a quote on the wall one day waiting for an acupressure, uh, acupuncture appointment. Um, and the quote was, my barn having burned to the ground, I now see the moon. And in, you said in your book, pain becomes wisdom and we cannot help another without also helping ourselves. And, uh, and I have to say that that takes that takes courage to, to access that kind of wisdom that pain brings. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know when in our culture, we became so afraid of discomfort. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's
1: not just our culture. <laughs> Um, I work, you know, here at the Sala Care Farm. I work with people from all over the world. We've had people come from Colombia, Cambodia, Ghana, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, all around the world. <clears throat> and it's not just our culture that's uncomfortable with, with pain, especially grief, especially the death of a child. And I think it's I think what induces a lot of a lot of the sort of lack of responsiveness uh, has a lot to do with fear. I keep coming back to that because it's what, it's what I hear from people when they talk to me, when, when just, you know, non grieving people, if I meet them at an event or something and they ask what I do and I tell them and they, you know, their eyes become saucers and they're like, oh yeah, no, I, (laughs) I. I don't know why you would do that kind of work, but I don't really want to talk to you anymore. Sometimes explicitly, like it's too fear inducing if they have children to contemplate the possibility that their child oh. could die, yes. right? They just, yes. it's just too much for, it's. They're, they don't have the emotional resources to hold it. Now, once in a while I meet someone who can, and it's always really refreshing that, you know, when you meet someone who's not grieving, who hasn't had a significant traumatic loss <clears throat> and they- and they're legitimately curious and not afraid, but I would say it's the it's it, it, by far a minority of of people for sure, no doubt. You know, most people do react very strongly, Scarlet. And I, I mean, I understand it, but also uh, it's just so deleterious. So. If we come back to a study that I just published with some colleagues um, on PLOS One, it's open, so anybody can look it up. I looked at uh, social support. We, we, we were specifically inquiring about the actors and actions of good social support. And uh, so we asked about uh, crisis support, so, like in the, in the immediate crisis crisis response teams. I know tragically you have experience with those. Uh Um, So crisis response teams, nurses, doctors, pastoral staff or pastoral care during a crisis. Um, uh, We ask about uh, medical staff and then we also uh, family, friends and colleagues. We also ask about postvention care, uh, care that comes later. And we asked about all these different human groups including therapists and counselors. And uh, at the very end, before, just before we published the survey, I had this idea, hmm, I'm going to throw something, another category in there. That's not like the others. And so I put animals and pets in there mm. and I was absolutely utterly shocked. Now I love animals. You know, this about me, Scarlett, I've been, I you. Do. I've been yeah. Um, but I was really shocked animals and pets, really basically blew every human category out of the water. They were better than therapists, better than spiritual providers, better than medical staff, better by far better than family, better than friends. And I just, (laughs) wow. Yeah, yeah. I'll send you a copy of the study. It's really interesting. Um, Their level of satisfaction and here's why. So we did a deeper analysis and asked people why? Tell us more about this. And the, in the deeper analysis, basically what it comes down to is animals just stay. Like when I, so many people said, when I'm crying, my dog or my cat just curls up next to me and doesn't expect me to stop crying and doesn't expect me to feel better. And, you know, it doesn't expect anything of me other than a belly rub. And there was, by the way, that was also really helpful for people is just having something to care for, someone else to care for. Mm -hmm. Um, But more so prevalent in the data was just this capacity of animals to hold their emotions, which the human groups had a hard time doing. And I think it's in a way, I think it's our neocortex getting in the way, you know, our executive brain, the human being and the human being, the executive brain says things like, oh, if Scarlett's child can die, my child can die. And that's terrifying to confront. Right. And the, the animal has no capacity to think in that executive way. And so it doesn't impede their capacity to connect with us. And and it was, so it was really, uh, it was really heartwarming to see that about animals and also really heartbreaking. Like I was like, oh, well, when it comes to good grief support, be like a dog.
0: Is that the message here? (laughs) Maybe. Right. So interesting. Do you think it also has to do with empathy and the fact that empathy lights up the same receptors in our brain as physical pain? So when we're sitting next to one and we're empathizing or putting ourselves in their shoes. It's actually a painful process. And we can only do that for so long. And then there's empathy, fatigue, empathy, um, overload, and we have to turn away. Do you think that maybe animals, ah, maybe animals are compassionate in that they, they can be with us, but they don't they don't understand. You just were talking about their executive function. They're okay. not understanding on this level of like, Oh my God, I could lose my puppies, <laughs>
1: you know? Right. Uh,
0: but they right. just want to be with us. Right. And, and, uh, I know, you know, that I have a farm and I want to talk about your care farm, but my, my animals were so amazing and they seem to almost be attracted to me when I'm feeling down yeah. and, and so able to just be present. And there's like an energy, um, that they read and, and somehow they seem to, to, to raise my energy up to their level, which is always calm and consistent. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, that is amazing. I love that. I think it's incredible for our listeners to hear and I'd love for you to talk about your care farm. Sure.
1: I, I, just going back for a moment, yeah. I think what I think what happens is I think the mind gets in the way with humans, right? Because oh the God. mind is all about the stories. Right? Yes, and so with the animal, the mind doesn't get in the way. The animal is ju- the animal is just the perfect example of mindfulness, right? Being here now and not being encumbered by stories of the mind, stories we create. Whereas human beings, uh-huh. we create the stories of. <sighs> oh my gosh, you know, this could happen to me, this could happen to my, and that I think is an impediment. I think that creates a chasm between self and other. Um, so, the, so the care farm is, all of our animals are, are rescued. And so they were either on the light end, homeless, um, on the serious end, some were actually tortured and badly. Um, and, and so they all know what it is to feel lonely, to feel afraid, mm. to have grief, Mm -hmm. Um, to mistrust the world Mm -hmm. and they have most all of them have then now learned to trust in the world again and they have learned that they are um that that they don't have to feel lonely here because they have the connections so all of those sort of experiences of terror that they had um are they're still there. They're in their memory. Uh, they're thing called cellular memory. It's still there. So Mm -hmm. one of our horses that was hit in the head quite a lot, if you raise your hand up to him too fast and he doesn't know you, he'll lower his head and dodge what he, what his body believes will be a hit. Mm -hmm. Right. But they know the people they know and love and trust. They know that they're safe. Right, they have a feeling of safety here, and so we bring grieving families from around the world to help us take care of these these animals, uh, in this you know beautiful green space with lots of trees and lots of grass. And uh, you know we're we're building the farm to table gardens now. we we have our first meeting tomorrow, and uh, a labyrinth, and we have a quiet place and a, a place down by the river because we're on the river, and so people can go down there. It's a really sort of quiet. Mm, it's a quiet space where you almost feel like you're not anywhere near civilization which is quite mm.
0: lovely. So mm.
1: so there are lots of it restored, I call them restorative spaces. That's a term used in the literature, restorative spaces where people can sort of catch themselves get get a sense of equilibrium again in the world and feel really safe to be with their grief, right? Because there are very few places where we actually, we actually welcome grief here. And if you're sitting underneath a tree here crying, that's okay. No, one's going to say, let's go have a drink. Or shouldn't you be over it by now? Or shouldn't you be feeling better by now? It's intentional. It's 12 intentional acres where people are allowed to feel whatever they feel. And no one's going to try and take it from them or colonize that, right?
0: I, I, absolutely love that. And I know that when we were visiting and you were doing your study in Sandy Hook, that that was an idea and now it's a reality. And that is absolutely amazing. And what you had described with animals um, seems like what we need to get to with people. And I just mean being able to be present with one another, wherever we, however, we find the person that we come upon. If they're grieving, it's easy to be present when we're celebrating a birthday, <laughs> it's much more different and, and difficult to be present when you, you, you are in grief. You're having, um, you know, kind of dis- discomforting feelings or somebody next to you. Yeah, that's,
1: that's really true. I call that in, in, in the book, I call it the happiness cult. And, and we don't do people any favors with the happiness cult with this idea that we have to be happy all the time. Sure, it's easy to be present with people at a birthday party when you're feeling when everybody's happy and feeling good or at a party but can you really stay the course when someone is is asking you to pour over photographs and videos of their child who died? Well, that's a, that's a whole other thing, right? And can you stay with that? And can you stay with that a year later and five years later and 10 years later? And can you remember the mother whose only child died 25 years later on Mother's Day? Like those are the kinds of things we need to start embodying those are the kinds of that's the kind of caring we need to start seeing 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 our dead really I mean I I can't look at you without seeing two boys those you have two sons you have JT and you have Jesse and they're both your children and I can never look at you or see your name or you know you know or see an email pop up from you without thinking to myself that's JT and Jesse's mom right I don't I don't think, oh, well, because Jesse died, she's not his mom anymore. That we're, that's. And if we can start seeing people that way and start really dealing with our own fears and our own anxieties and our own terrors about someone we love dying, because it's, it's going to happen. I mean, it may not be a child. It, hopefully it's not for anyone else, yes. but we know that it happens, right? Yes. And, right. And so- can we stay with people when they go through the tragedy that scares
0: us the most? That's the big question. That's the big question. And that's where we really need to get to. And, and I'll say, you know, and, and for me, I had to because of course it happened to me eight years ago, but I'll tell you what I, I love about grief (laughs) yes, I said, love, is that the people that I meet, and I'm on the road all the time. Um, so I'm meeting new people and it's so interesting. The, the connection is so authentic. Um, nobody, I don't know, maybe it's because they, they know who I am or I'm always talking about uh, Jesse and then what I've learned but when you're talking with somebody else who's who's been who knows grief and who's been there the conversation is so authentic yeah, yeah. it's so real and yeah. and and I it, it's it, you know I remember um you know going into a big group of grieving parents and thinking god I don't want to be I don't want to belong to this group and then once I went in there and we started having conversations I thought I don't want to be anywhere else. These are my people. And now um, it's, it's a great kind of uh, weeder out of, (laughs) of relationships, whether they're really authentic or whether they were surface, because I can't stand the surfacy kind of conversation anymore. The niceties Uh, I really appreciate people who are uh, who just open themselves and we connect on a heartfelt level. And that's what you can do yeah. when you have had a, a, had a significant loss. If, if you can have the courage to be present with it and then with other people, that is a benefit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the tolerance for superficiality really uh, is elusive when you've been through something so significant. I mean, you know that things like, that the superficial things in life don't matter, you know, what really matters. And it's becomes incredibly hard to tolerate people complaining about things like, you know, not sleeping because their baby kept them up. Right. I mean, in that world, yes. Oh yeah. That's hard. But when, but when you really know what's hard, it can be difficult to listen to conversations that are, that are complaining about things that, or people talking about things that don't feel meaningful, that don't feel like this is real conversation, right? We're talking about things that really matter here. So what really matters? Like love, compassion, connection, grief. I mean, grief is not, grief isn't the enemy, you know? Grief is an understandable outcome of a tragedy, right? Like, a, like you know, like Jesse, was killed, was murdered by someone, the grief that you feel from that is not the bad thing. The bad thing is that he's not here. Right And so, and so I, I do meet a lot of people who have this sort of really difficult contentious relationship with grief, and I'm telling and I tell people in a gentle way, but if that's your relationship with grief, you're gonna have a very long lifetime here on this planet because you know gr- grief is just this thing that happens because the person you love most in the world isn't here, right? And g- becoming friends with my grief right was like, a real turning point for me, you know, about, it happened about 26 years ago, you know, where I became friends with my grief and I was like, okay, okay. I get it. I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at death. Like I, I, I'm mad that, that, that you died. I'm furious. I'm devastated that you died, but the grief isn't something I have to hate. The grief is something that's mine and it belongs to me. And it's part
0: of loving her right? Does that make sense? Oh my gosh. Yeah. In your book, you say, in uh, Bearing the Unbearable, you say, when we love deeply, we mourn deeply. Extraordinary grief is an expression of extraordinary love. Grief and love mirror each other. One is not possible without the other. And that is an extraordinary statement because then that also makes us have to consider in our society how do we love that's right if we're so afraid of grief are we equally as afraid of loving and connecting with one another what do you think about that well I mean I think I think people think that they they
1: express love in some interesting ways but but I mean but we but we make we also make war a lot right not just war in our own bodies but war in our families and war you know in the world <laughs> literal war i mean that the, the, this is this is one of the things that i say about grieving people i think grieving people can potentially if they fully inhabit their grief i think they're the potential peacekeepers i think they're the peace bringers because um, Because when you have fully inhabited grief, you can, there is no other. Right, there is no other. There's no other in a person who looks different from you. There's no other in a person who has a different experience of life or a different loss. There's no other, even in terms of species or the planet, you start seeing the interconnectedness of all things, borrowing from sort of the indigenous people and the mystics of the world and every religious group, this idea of oneness, ahimsa, uh, henosis, uh, it, it's a thing. It, it, it is a thing. Once you realize that and you can see that with clarity and, and the way that you see that with clarity is by understanding that there is no other. So we all have grief. And so we, we all love, so we will all have grief. And it's the thing that unites us. And once you see, once you can see the capacity of someone else to suffer, then the only thing you want is not to add to that suffering. Like the only thing that you want is not to make life harder and, and to express compassion compassion in your families or
0: compassion, you know, with other nations, right? Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. Yeah. Uh, it, it does. And, and that's, that's something that we need to teach. So, so it, it shows how important that grief is in our education system from, from introducing this to kids at a young age Because if they can be comfortable with that, that's one of the ways that we're connected as human beings. So we all want to love and be loved, yet we all feel pain and suffer. That is also a way that we're all connected. Mm -hmm. And so you can see visual differences with all of us. Um, but in reality, we're all the same. Somebody said the other day, um, we may look different, but if you cut us open, we all bleed red. And I thought that that was, uh, so true. Um, and you know, that that's, that's Jesse's message of nurturing, healing, love, um, was so profound to me that I knew that I'd be spreading that message, that that is how we're all connected. And gosh, if Adam Lanza had been able to give and receive love, that the tragedy would never have happened. It was so simple, but simple isn't always easy. But here's here's this incredible thing. We can teach people how to love and how to connect. And we can also teach them how to mourn and, and, and how to grieve and how you can use that to actually become even more connected with, with others. And, and I know that there's a propensity because I felt it, and sometimes I still do um, with my grief to, to use it as a way to um, be separated because there's there very there are few people, thank goodness, that understand the the tragic yeah. kind of mourning, you know, whose loved ones were lost in mass tragedy. Yeah. Um at least I don't see them that often, and I'm yeah. glad. Um, but being able to connect with others that are grieving is just so important, yeah, yeah. and and I think,
1: what, you know, what really resonated with what you just said. I think this idea of being able to teach this is so important. And it's not it. I mean, teach it to the children, teach it, just teach it everywhere, teach it to the adults, to the children, teach it and embody it and, and really embody it, really embody this ahimsa, this compassion for everything. And if we can teach this, um, you know, compassion is an interesting word because people associate often in what I'm teaching, people associate compassion with kindness, right? Thinking that compassion is to be kind. And I'm like, well, let's look at the word. So the word calm means with, so it's a root word for with the prefix and passion actually comes from a root word, meaning to suffer. And so compassion actually means actively suffering with another, in other words, actively joining someone in whatever pain they're experiencing, whatever suffering they're having. And we just don't do that well at all. We want to alleviate suffering. We want people to, to not be sad, to not feel pain, to not feel all these things. And, and the irony of it is that recently the world health organization came out and declared loneliness, like a public health uh, problem. Yes. Loneliness is, is in, ter- in the literature, loneliness is more risky than, than certain behaviors like smoking or um, extreme obesity. Loneliness poses a, a greater risk to our physical health, okay? And when we're suffering and people won't see that and join us there and just be with us, it incites an incredible sense of loneliness for people. And... That loneliness doesn't do anyone any good. The the loneliness is the one thing that we can actually help with, right? We can't make grief go away. I can't bring Jesse back. I can't bring anyone's child back or anyone's parent back or anyone's partner or, or sibling back. I can't do that. No one has that power. But what I do have the power to do is to help people feel a little less alone in that. And that's something we can all do. It's simple. You just sit with someone. You, you put your arm around them. You listen to them. You see them. You look at pictures with them. This isn't rocket science, but we've moved so far away from the wisdom of the heart Scarlett, it just, it's sad. It really is. We've become, you know, mental mind experts and and we've become, you know, sort of love and heart, you know, emotional, you know, infants. We don't know what
0: to do. We have no capacity. So h- how do we do that? I mean, I, I, I agree with you and I'll say that that's what I'm seeing during yeah, yeah. my travels. Um, how how do we infuse people individuals with the courage that it takes because it absolutely takes courage to be present and, and and to open our hearts because when you open your hearts you open it to love but you also open it to pain yes, yes. so so yes. How, how, what are the
1: first steps First, I, mean, I think we need to have some education around emotions, hard emotions, right? Mm-hmm. How do we feel hard emotions? And then I think we need to have conversations, like real important conversations about people dying, people we love who die. Mm-hmm. Like um, I can remember when, um, when my youngest son was in um, fourth or fifth grade, um, we, he had a, a teacher, an art teacher from Mexico, and it was uh, getting close to Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. And she was having them do an art project in honor of someone they love who died. They were gonna make um, Calaveras skulls. And uh, I got an email, I didn't know about this at all until I got an email from a really angry mother of one of the children saying, this is, they're too young for this. How dare they, you know, how dare this school do this? And they wanted to boycott the teacher and they, she was trying to get people to pick it. And of course I chimed in (laughs) and sent the email reply to all and said, um, I, I feel like this is a really beautiful thing to remember someone you love who died. And, um, you know, and culturally Dia de las Muertos is a beautiful celebration. I encourage you all to learn more about it, right? Rather than this knee jerk reaction. So it, it ended up going forward, the project ended up going forward, but but it's that sort of, you know, oh, somehow if we talk about hard things, it's going to mess up our children's mental health. Well, no. <laughs> No, if we don't talk about hard things, they are going to be ill-prepared to deal with a world where people we love can and do die, where loss happens, where pandemics occur.
0: There's so much fear and it's all based in fear. And, And that leads me right back to Sandy Hook and just amazement at how much fear there was in acknowledging the, what happened. And, and, and so they didn't, um, they, uh, they, I know that there was a student that had drawn um, on the wall in the high school, her version of a memorial and they painted over it because it was triggering some kids. I know even when they built the new school, they were not going to have any sort of plaque, any sort of, in fact, we were told um, the place where people died is in the middle of the parking lot and there's going to be a grassy patch, but there's going to be two so that in 10 years, nobody's going to know which is which and they're going to forget that it ever happened. And right. uh, explicitly told that, Yes. Even even with the memorial, we're eight years out and I was uh, serving on the Memorial Commission with a few people that you know from your time here. And I remember um, we had opened it up to a public forum and there were a group of women that came in that I knew that sat right in front of where the victims' families were sitting that were on the commission. And when it was their turn to speak, they pointed at us and they said, without looking at us, they have a memorial, it's called a tombstone. They can go there anytime they want to grieve. This is obviously still traumatic for me because I'm sharing it um, and I remember it verbatim. Why should we have to drive past something and feel sad and then have to explain that to our kids? Um, and I'll tell you what, Joanne, I quit the commission that day. I went home, I enlisted my art group. We painted a five foot by 10 foot uh, mural on the outside of my barn, which is right on the road because I needed a memorial. And I thought that there were people in Sandy Hook that needed it, needed to think about it, needed to mourn themselves. And uh, and then I was done with it. And, uh, and you know, I think that, um, we need to, we need to do better. Oh, 100,000%. Scarlett.
1: I'm it's, it's abhorrent actually. And inexcusable. It, it just is these kinds of hard conversations have to happen and people need to stop centering their own needs and start centering the needs of, of people who are, who are, who are the primary grievers, who are the ones who are in the middle of this of, of the terror and the horror of this. I mean, that was one of the things that did come out of the study in Sandy Hook were the stories of, of occasions like the one where um, there were books donated in honor of a precious little girl who died and they removed the the dedication page because it would make people sad. I mean, I I, I can't even I, there aren't words for su- such missteps like that it is it is actually psychological oppression i i feel um and and i and of course this doesn't help anyone pretending this didn't happen doesn't help anyone right i mean you can't pretend away a tragedy you can't pretend away um, you know, genocide or a Holocaust or a mass shooting or the death of, of you know, uh, 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 for, for a five year old, the death of his father to suicide. You can't wish it or pretend it away. We, we can't, the, the whole family secrets, community secrets thing, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We, we can't perpetuate that cycle. It's maddening to me.
0: Yeah. It doesn't work because if you don't acknowledge something, then you can't learn from it. Mm -hmm. And that's how we're going to keep these things from happening again. It's acknowledging it's going through the grieving process, but it's also learning from it and correcting mistakes that, that, that happen. And, you know, I, I can, I can feel compassion because I know that it's all stemming from fear. Um, but at the same time, there has to be a movement to be able to face that fear and, and grow out of it. Do you see that? I mean, I know that that's what your work is, is focused on. That's what my work is focused on. And I'm wondering if you've seen improvement. There's, there's a little movement. There's
1: a little movement. I'm being, I'm being contacted more by, you know, corporations who want to do better for their employees where, you know, I get, I get, you know, I get communication from people who read the book, not because they experienced it, but because of some tragedy that happened in their neighborhood. And, and they, they, you know, they're thanking me for teaching them. So there's a little bit, but my gosh, there's just so much more work to do. And And, and the thing is, there's, there's a, there's a sacred, there's a holiness in remembering Mm -hmm. and, you know, and the opposite of remembering to forget or to dismember, to take something apart, to take it apart, to literally take it from the whole and fragment it. There's a cost to that. And, and the cost is, is, is is much more serious than people understand in the moment. I mean, I see it with people. I met with a woman uh, who came to the care farm for counseling. She was in her eighties and her, her daughter who died was three years older than me when she died. Mm
0: -hmm. And it had,
1: so it had been 55 years, 53 years, 55 years, something like that since she remembered her daughter, but her body remembered you know, she had been, and her behaviors, remember, she'd been in and out of uh, psychiatric facilities, in and out of substance abuse treatment facilities, been married seven times, lived in 12 states, couldn't hold down a job. And she wasn't like this before her daughter died. So her quote, mental health problems throughout the course of her entire life, and now she's in her 80s and she's like, I'm ready to deal with this, finally, Right. But all of that, that there was a cost, not just to her, but to her family, not just to her family, but to the community, not just to the community, but to the world,
0: Absolutely. right? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I will say too, that I see movement. I, I know that um, it, within the last eight years, there is this move towards love. I saw in the beginning, there was a little bit of wariness about bringing the word love into schools and talking about love. And now just to give you an update, Joanne, because we haven't talked to each other in a couple of years, the Choose Love movement program is in over 10,000 schools in every state and 112 countries. And so this word love is, uh, is being, Proliferated uh, across um, across the world in schools, it's becoming part of our normal vernacular, mm-hmm. and we do talk about grief. We do talk about hard emotions, and we do talk about being present with those and and having the courage to face them and and not resist or avoid or numb yourself from them. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I mean I I don't know what the aversion is to the word
1: love. I guess it maybe it's the same aversion to the word grief. It just feels too intimate, too overwhelming for some people, but I don't I shudder to think what we
0: would do without both love and grief. Yes, and you can't live without both because you're going to experience both and we have to acknowledge both and we learn from both. We deepen our our awareness of our world and we live a much more rich life. I, I think about my life eight years ago and and I was a different person and and now because of my experience, I I, I have to thank Jesse. I mean, I miss him, I'd give it all back, and you say the same in your book, yes. but the the personal growth that I've had, through my pain and suffering is so exponential. I appreciate it so much. And I've been, I feel like Joanne, I feel like we are here as human beings on earth. You know, we're all, what's our purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? I feel like our purpose is to take our experiences, including the difficult ones and learn Face them, learn from them, grow through them, understanding that we can be strengthened by them and then take what we've learned and the wisdom that we have at that point through the courage that we have to face uh, tough things in our lives and use it to help other people.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, service to others is
0: service to others.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, um, Frankel's work, right? I mean, it's just, it's so important. We, you can't, it's quite hard
0: to live a meaningful life if all you're focused on is yourself. Yes. And, and I think that's why we're here is to realize that we, we might be the center of our universe, but we're here to serve others. And, and, and that to me, Um, and I'm interested to hear what you think that is the most healing thing that you can do is to get outside of, of maybe your like, acknowledge it, be with it, but then take it and help others. And, and I say that a lot because I, I watch, um, my son JT and, and, you know, what he did with his grief, he. You know, traditional therapy didn't work for him, but when those orphan genocide survivors from Rwanda reached out to him and then he started his organization, Newtown Helps Rwanda, and reached back out to them, that was when he blossomed. That's when he was able to go back to school and and, and seeing uh, the, the good that he at 13, 14, 15 years old could do, could make in other people's lives was so healing to him. And, and I learned so much from that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh there. yeah. There's no doubt that, well, you lose so much of your identity, right? When, when, you know, when Jesse died, you know, JT didn't get to be his big brother in the house anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And you get to mother physically, you mother one child, and your other child isn't there to actively mother in the way you mothered him before. And so you have this sort of crisis of identity. Who am I now? What do I do with all this energy? That's love that, that, that I don't know. And I don't know where to put it. And, and, you know, there's, there's a period of time where people may not act because they're in too much trauma and grief. Absolutely fine. You know, don't, don't, you know there, you know, don't help others before you've done your work and before you're ready to help others. But That's- when you feel ready to serve, ignoring the call to serve will I think would incite misery in me. I and I've met people who until they kind of like what you said, until they figured out this is a way that I can embody both my grief and my love, and 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 the person who died, his or her sort of energy in the world, his or her um, beingness in the world, this is the way I can bring that forth, right? And there's something about finding that niche for each of us that is uh, transfigurative. I mean, it just, it cha- it's a game changer. It changes everything. And also it can't be rushed. That's one of the things Frankel warns us about in Man's Search for Meaning when he talks about, you know, you can't, it has to unfold in its own time. But, but to ignore the call would be imprudent, right? To ignore that you're being called to do something to help. And it doesn't have to be, you know, enormous. It, doesn't have, it could be, you know, something as simple as, you know, helping a neighbor mow her lawn, right? Which seems, right. you know, to some people may not seem like a big deal, but that could be a lifesaver for that neighbor in terms of feeling like someone cares about her or that, um, that she's not alone in the world. So, uh, you know, that could be a lifesaver. So even the smallest, I don't small, even the most micro acts of compassion can be a way that we can serve. It's, it's, you know, cause sometimes people get overwhelmed. Like I don't have the energy. I don't have the resources. I don't know how to start a foundation. I don't know how to start a movement, you know, like you did, like she did, like they did. That's fine. You know, I have a thing that I say when I talk about the kindness project and I, and I say to help one person is to help the world. Mm. And, and further than that, for me, of course, cause I'm an animal lover to help one being is to help the world. Mm. You know, I, I work with a family whose two children were killed in a tragic, Um, car crash when they were rear-ended and um, her, their love, her her children's love of, of animals and dogs caused her to start rescuing animals for them. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many animal lives that she and her husband have saved in honor of their two children who died. Mm -hmm. That is beauty from pain. And, you know, I mean, (sighs) What else are we going to do with this pain?
0: Right. I I, I remember um, hearing from an educator in North Carolina when I was first starting out, and how Jesse's story had touched this little boy, and she saw him wearing his his little band with the formula on it the following year, and um, and Jesse spoke to me, <laughs> literally like in my mind, but it was his, his voice. And he said, mom, if all we, if all you did is, is help relieve the suffering of this one little boy, it would be enough. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I took a deep breath because I realized it's not, it's not in, in great acts, uh, you know, huge, overwhelming acts. It's, it's in, it's in literally touching the heart of people. And you can do that by, leaving a little sticky note in somebody's mailbox or, or looking into somebody's eyes. We, we all want to be safe, seen and celebrated, just acknowledging some, someone walking by them. I mean, it, it could be anything and you could yeah. be saving a life. And, and I believe, and I know through science that all of the love that you give out, you get back and it's healing for yourself. Yeah nurturing, healing love. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's his message, right? Right. Right. Exactly. Um, Do you have, do you, I I know that we're, we're coming up on time and I hate that because I could talk to you forever, but do you have anything that you want to leave us with? Oh, I mean, I think um,
1: if I was going to leave you with anything, it would just be all my love, right? I mean, I just, I send out love to everyone who is hurting and I just hope that there's someone in their sphere, human or animal, human or non-human, who is able to be with them because the saddest thing to me is when we're hurting and alone.
0: Yes, Absolutely. And in your book, you talk about this little story where this man uh, went to a monastery um, to meditate and find peace and happiness. And the teacher said to him, I hope you're not afraid of suffering. And the man replied, what? I'm here to find peace. (laughs) And the teacher then explained there are two kinds of suffering, the suffering we run from because we're unwilling to face the truth of life and the suffering that comes when we're willing to stop running from the sorrows and difficulties of the world. The second kind of suffering leads you to freedom. And that's what we've been talking about today, um, finding freedom and, and peace even in the midst of suffering and it's there. And I, I just wanna thank you so much for for joining me today on the Choose Love podcast. Thank you for the work in the world because it is so important. There is nothing more important that anyone could be doing. And um, I want to come and, and visit the care farm. <laughs> As you that's know, I'm-
1: Right, that's overdue.
0: Yes. It's absolutely overdue. Yeah. And, uh, I just love you so much and I'm so grateful for you and, and the, and, and, the ripple effect that you're having in our world and, and, and the healing that you helped me find as well during our time together. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Scarlett. Thank you for having me. And thank you, sweet Jesse. Yes. And Cheyenne together actually
1: (laughs) i would hope so
0: they better be they better be oh i know they are (laughs) having a lot of fun as jesse as jesse left in his message for his older brother that was his main focus (laughs) don't forget to play yes yeah play is so important yeah well thank you so much joanne thank you scarlett Hello and welcome to the Choose Love podcast. Today we have with us special guests Danielle Matthew and Dr. Eve Goldstein who are both therapists helping people deal with post-COVID stress and working to provide essential tools to support students and teachers. Hello and welcome to the Choose Love podcast. Today we have with us special guests Danielle Matthew, and Dr. Eve Goldstein, who are both therapists helping people deal with post-COVID stress and working to provide essential tools to support students and teachers.